Hello and welcome to Future Self. I'm Max Lechner-Scott. I'm a third year student at the Australian National University studying a Bachelor of International Relations and a Bachelor of Arts. My major is in Arabic and my focus area is the Middle East. Today I will be talking to Dr. Kristen V. Monroe, Associate Professor of Anthropology in the University of Kentucky. Her work on Beirut in the insecure city, space, power and mobility in Beirut drew me into the world of Arab urbanism and allowed me to understand the order behind the apparent chaos of Beirut, covering topics of privatization, public spaces and driving. So first question, how would you define your field of study, Dr. Monroe? Well, um, for much of my career, I've been um, so I've self-identified as an urban anthropologist, definitely. Uh, I've always been fascinated by cities. I love cities. So even in my outside of, you know, academic work, I feel like I'm a student of cities um, and I learn from them and I'm drawn to them. And so urban anthropology, I'm definitely an urban anthropologist. Um, where I was trained for my doctorate, we we took on sort of theoretical identities and not so much kind of subfields of anthropology. But in my career as a professor, I have taken on the identity of a political anthropologist. So when I say that, I, I feel like what I'm saying is, you know, I'm somebody who's attuned to sort of relationships of power in the places that I um, investigate and I study. And, and I think, you know, political anthropology has a long history and it has sort of a traditional history. And I don't identify with the, you know, focus on um, tribes and social organization and things like that. But in its kind of more, its incarnation in the last, I'd say, a couple of decades, it's, it's about um, really politics, the, the, the sort of the spectacle and the spaces of politics, which are really everywhere. So those are probably the primary two. And then, of course, my area, you know, so I'm, as a Middle Eastern anthropologist, that's, you know, anthropologists are very closely tied to their to their field sites and, you know, the the geopolitics that shape their field sites. So absolutely, like I've, I'm a Middle Eastern anthropologist as well. But those fields topically um, of urban anthropology and political anthropology are probably the ones I most closely identify with topically. Mm. Um, so I'm interested to hear that you um, are fascinated by cities. Did Were you born in a city? Did you grow up there as well? I did, but it's... It, it's a small, I mean, I grew up in a small city in Western New York. It's Rochester, New York. It's like one of those kind of um, rust belt cities. I mean, at the time I grew up, it was probably not in its decline. It's kind of been in more in its decline in kind of a post-industrial, you know, U.S. economy. But, um, you know, sometimes when I do, I don't know if you've done any of these readings from the turn of the century, kind of these very philosophical, you know, they're, they're full of platitudes, but these philosophical writings about cities as they were growing um, at the turn of the century and in the early, by turn of the century, I mean the turn of the 19th to the 20th century or early 20th century. So some of the kind of foundational writings on cities from that time, I still find like very captivating. They, they still speak to what the, the pleasures or sort of the delights of the city, I think today. So, you know, things having to do, of course, with like diversity and the commotion of cities and the kind of, right, the possibilities and the opportunities and just, like I think that it's it's interesting to read some of these things from let's say the 1920s um, or even earlier and sort of see the city as something that's in terms of its kind of social significance hasn't really shifted you know and, and seems to have that some of the same draw for social scientists let's say over a span of more than a century. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, 
So I guess that this ties into the next question as well. Um, so how did you get to where you are? Like what started you on this journey to being an academic? Um, I'm in a similar situation actually as well. I come from a steel city in Australia, Newcastle, which also had to grapple with the like post-industrialization in Australia. So yeah, what, what was the first inkling you had that you wanted to be an academic? Well, it, it, it was a long time coming. So it's interesting. I work with sometimes in academia, often in academia, you'll find people who knew they were on this path, like very early on and, you know, um, uh, faculty who were, you know, stellar undergraduates, you know, stellar students their whole lives and stellar undergraduates. And they went straight from their bachelor's program to a doctorate and, you know, earned their doctorate at 29 or something like that. So that is definitely not my trajectory. Um, I was always a good student, but actually my grade point average, I don't know what the equivalent term is in Australia, but my grade point average as an undergraduate student was not, it wasn't amazing. But when I was an undergraduate student, I was an anthropology and sociology major. And, and even though I wasn't like, I wasn't the best writer or the best thinker, I was definitely a thoughtful student. And it was those fields of study that, well, I chose to major in and that I just, I just sat with a lot of like social theory and it was like intimidating to me and difficult for me, but I, I was drawn to it. I loved it. Uh, but I think there was a moment, I think it was between my third and my fourth year when my, one of my sociology professors asked if I wanted to assist him in some research assistance for his book. And it was, you know, very much like, I think, collecting work and writing annotated bibliographies and things like that. Um, but I remember that being sort of a turning point in the sense that I didn't feel like I was ever the best student in the class. But when this professor, you know, it's, it's kind of a really cliche story, but when this, when somebody actually asks, singles you out in some way for your intellect, I mean, it, it can be a turning point because that's when you take on this feeling um, of your potential. And it, and, but it's, if you don't come from a background of academics, or if you don't come from a background where you're just, you know, always sort of the star student, it's not, naturalized for you that this is going to this is your role in life and so I remember that being a turning point and I thought how could he be asking me how could I be smart enough to help this professor with anything you know what do I have to offer so that was a turning point for me in terms of thinking of myself as having some kind of intellectual I don't know aptitude <laughs> I won't not even a gift but just an aptitude ability and then actually as a um, in my final year of study as an undergraduate I was study abroad so most students will do it in their third year in the states as like a would be called junior year abroad but I did a semester abroad in Morocco in my final year and I think that you know even that just one year later I think as a student finishing you know it was a I don't know, I had a, maybe a little bit of, a, of like, I was a little bit more mature. I was a little bit kind of, I was ready to kind of take on that experience in a certain way. Um, so I would mark that off my experience abroad, of course, in Morocco, that was my first time or second time outside of the United States. And um, that was, with the, you know, I was in the Arab world. I was, I spoke French. I lived with a host family. I became really interested in Arabic and Islam. So that was a turning point. But to tell the truth, I, I wasn't ready to consider myself on an academic path at an age 22. And I worked for several years, um, and then I returned to graduate school as a master's student, um, doing a terminal master's. So I did a master's in Middle East studies. So I came back to my interest in that area of the world, but actually as a pre with a pre-professional plan. And I was preparing to probably work in government or if, you know non-governmental work. I was preparing to take the foreign service exam, and even got the booklet to study. And again, it were the, these interventions from. Um, 
from educators, basically. I had professors in my master's program who, you know, suggested to me that I continue on for a doctorate. And I, it was, again, there's this kind of, you know, those imposter moments, right, where somebody says something to you and you're thinking, who, me? You know, this, this you can't be asking me. And, um, but those are really important interventions, you know, like they're really great moments in life. And those moments of having faculty whom I admired say, suggest to me that I take, think about doing a doctorate was sort of all I needed in a way. It was a push forward. So I continued on um, for a PhD in anthropology at Stanford um, from the master's program. So that those two degrees were consecutive, but there was a space of, there was a space of, you know, reflection and, um, you know, a space of trying to figure out what was kind of, un, kind of unfinished for me. In the intervening years between my undergraduate studies and returning for master's, actually one of my closest friends asked me that question once where I was struggling with, you know, what's next? What should I do? And um, she, she asked me, well, what's unfinished? And, you know, I remember that being like the question, right? Like, so that was, and that's when I returned for the master's, but what felt really unfinished was being abroad, being abroad and being in the Arab world and continuing my studies of Arabic and continuing to kind of go on this path of like cultivating kind of a deep knowledge and understanding of that part of the world. And I knew the answer to that question. I didn't necessarily know how I was going to answer it. <laughs> but when she asked me that, it felt very immediate to me that that was the direction I would head toward. Oh, that's really cool. So over the years then, like um, how, how did you find out what, what you spent most of your time doing? And like, how has that changed from the beginning to the end? And also, what's your favorite part about what you do? <laughs> Okay, so my favorite part is kind of easy. I think um, my favorite part of what I do for my job, you know, for my how I support myself, <laughs> and, uh, is you know the creativity, like the autonomy, and the kind of intellectual creativity that that I'm allowed. You know, that I, I like. This is it feels it feels kind of like a dream come true, actually, in a way. I mean, to have the ability to support myself through work that. I have to like I get to develop and I get to design is something really special and um, something that you know if it were sort of taken away from me by circumstance I mean I, I would I would miss a lot. Um, I think that's something you know and that that's something obviously in the research part of my job right. So our our jobs as professors at least you know where I'm teaching at a research university are divided into these three parts. You know they're divided into research. Um, teaching, and then another part that's called service, which is can be service that you're giving back to the department or also to like your field of study, you know, globally or nationally or something like that. Um, but I, I see that this kind of intellectual kind of creativity, you know, I can, it, it can go into each section, right? There's no part where it kind of gets cut off. There's, you know, the mundane running, day-to-day runnings of, of a department and things like that. And there's work that has to be done that maybe doesn't fit the category of intellectual creativity. But yeah, I would say, I mean, that that piece for me is, yeah, is, is something that I probably had, like I kind of, my earlier intellectual biography indicates, you know, it's not something I imagined for myself. And I think it's, you know, it's a pri- it, it really is a privilege and I don't take it for granted. I think it's a real privilege. Um, but as far as kind of the, let's say, um, maybe how I got, like where I was and what I've come to, um, trying to think of a good answer to that question. I mean, in some ways, there's a lot that remains the same in the sense that like when you're developing research projects, 
you know, you're, you develop new projects and you become kind of the neophyte, you know, once again, or you, you know, you, you tread into kind of a new, new territory, whether it's a new field site or a new topic or a whole new research project. And it's, you know, you, you become a new, new to it again. And you're, you're kind of not back in the beginning, but, um, you're back learning something like you're reading new literature, you're asking new questions. And so that kind of active discovery is something that, again, is part of the intellectual creativity, right? So it's, it's something that is ongoing. And, and in some ways, you're as rusty as you were at the beginning in some ways, like even 15 years in, which is, I guess, probably what I would date. I think it was 15, year, 15 years ago that I went into the field to begin my dissertation research that's that's cool like I think that's a cool thing that is a way to you know definitely like keep you humble and keep you sort of you know keep you from sort of feeling like you've you figured things out because it's like you know you're constantly kind of actually developed that's the the point of research is to kind of you know keep asking new questions and keep kind of pushing yourself so that's that's something that's actually remained the same um on a personal note sort of what's different um, this kind of gets into some of the positionality stuff that you may have read about. I don't know how much anthropology, anthropology you've taken, Max, but anthropologists for quite a bit of time, at least since kind of the post-colonial moment since the 70s, have been very intellectually engaged by questions of positionality, sort of who the anthropologist is, right? Who the anthropologist is in the field and how who they are shapes, you know, knowledge production and things like that. Um, so on a very personal kind of anecdotal, anecdotal note, one of the things that's changed in my trajectory is that like, you know, like I've changed, like I've, you know, like I've become middle-aged in my, in the time that, in the time I began to the time I'm stopped doing research. And I think the reason why that's interesting is that it, it's a, it's a way that, you know, who, who you are, of course, like shapes how people relate to you in the field. It shapes different access points, even for example, the, the sexism that, I faced as a younger woman, it, it shifts a little bit because if you become a, a middle-aged woman and I self-identify as um, a person who's married to a man and a person who has children, I become kind of a mother. I'm a different figure, um, especially in worlds that are, that are male dominated, right? In, in the part of the world that I work in. So just to kind of sum up, I think one of, one of the ways in which I think about your question, how have things changed for me is how I've changed and how that's kind of changed the mode of research. And just to finish up on this, um, there's a beautiful book by this anthropologist named Doreen Kondo, who's Japanese American. And she, she writes in one of her ethnographies, she writes about this moment where she like looks in the mirror and during her research, she's like doing an interview or something like that. And she uses the restroom and she looks in the mirror and it's some sort of self-reflective moment about who she is and, and her kind of taking stock of like who people are seeing as she's like doing her field work and talking to people. And um, years ago, a couple of years ago, I had a moment like that where I was starting a new project in, in Qatar and I went to use the restroom after this interview I did with a um, government entity. And I was washing my hands and looking in the mirror and realizing, wow, I, like, I'm not the person that I was you know, 15 years ago. And, and the, the person that these people just engaged with was is, is this person in the mirror. You know? And that, just that kind of um, fashioning of kind of who you are as a researcher is is very much like informed by how other people see you right and how other people relate to you so that's one of the things that's shifted and it's been interesting to go with that and i and in fact in the new work that i'm working on with um syrian taxi drivers who drive between syria and lebanon uh you know my age aging into this 
middle-agedness is an, is, is an advantage research-wise, you know, rather than being um, younger or, or even younger and single or you're, you're read in different ways. And I think in anthropology, we, we take these seriously as these aspects of who we are. We take these seriously as ways in which, you know, we, we want people that are reading our work to, to see how that possibly has shaped kind of how we um, gather data and how we're kind of producing the knowledge that we're sharing. Long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good. Um, I find it really interesting. I've only ever studied anthropology sort of obliquely through my friends. Um, and so <laughs> I, I, essentially all of my friends study anthropology and I, I really love it as a discipline. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to hear these things. Um, and what you were saying really ties in nicely to the next question as well which is what, if any setbacks, did you experience getting to where you are today? How did you overcome them? I mean, especially in relation to the sexism, I think that's quite interesting to hear about. Mm. One of the things that, and I, I write about this a, a little bit in, in, yeah, in the introduction to my book about positionality has to do with, so I'm an African-American woman, you know, with, from a mixed race background. I have this, this kind of global brownness, which is, which is a, you know, situates me differently from, let's say, a white Western researcher and, you know, in, in the Arab world. Um, so I'm often interpolated, to use uh, a term from <laughs> uh, this theorist, Althusser, this French theorist, I'm often often interpolated as in Lebanon, for example, in the Levant, Levant region of the Middle East, I'm often read as um, from North Africa, for example, not as Lebanese and then my accent, you know, okay, she's just not, she's not a native speaker. She must be from, you know, so there's a, there's a way in which I'm situated within the region when I'm in the region is kind of the point. Um, so I say, I say that because I write about, I write about how, for example, in, in the long-term field work that I've done in Lebanon, there are a lot of researchers I know who work in Lebanon who are members of the diaspora, right? Who are members of the Lebanese diaspora and they have kinship ties, whether, you know, close or kind of more distant kinship ties to, to Lebanon and, and other researchers also to other places. And so I remember feeling for sure in the beginning of my research there that, that being an outsider was, was a real, was a setback was, you know, there were like a lot of limitations, you know, where I had moments where I thought I should have studied my own or you know, I should have stayed. These are, this is, you know, not that it's impenetrable, but that I'm really getting, you know, very partial perspective, like a, a partial glimpse and a partial understanding of um, culture and society by not being more connected, right? And that there are advantages to having, you know, there's a long, again, a long conversation in anthropology about native anthropology and sort of the way in which being a so-called native anthropologist is um, sometimes reified as, be, as having the most, you know, the best vantage point and that that's been critiqued and sort of unpacked in certain ways. But definitely for me, you know, frankly, yeah, as a researcher, who wasn't from Lebanon, who wasn't from the region, I often felt like I was on the outside. Um, mm. And so I talk about that in the introduction because I talk about like how in a way it it's no surprise that I was drawn to doing research in public space. You know, so I was drawn to doing research in places that, or research about sites in, in, in life, in everyday life that, that were sites that I could access and sites where I could access and actually be understood as kind of part of the kind of public urban environment in ways that weren't, you know, um, let's say a distraction or kind of like, who is she among all these other people on the street and things like that. So it's interesting how that was a kind of a negotiation for me of kind of designing. I mean, I already, from the, from the get-go, I designed a project that was, that was um, about urban space, but it's interesting how 
it's kind of like the chicken or the egg. Like, I think I also was, I, I looked at certain topics as accessible to me and probably certain topics as maybe less accessible to me in terms of methodology um, because of what I understood to be kind of an outsider status that I held. So that's one, something I would say is a setback, but I'm not, I'm not, I haven't overcome it. So it's not something I've overcome, um, but it's something that it's a consideration in terms of designing projects and then it's consideration all through sort of, I think the research process in terms of, yeah, what kinds of, what your topic is, it's quite simple, I guess, what your topic is and, and what kind of access you actually have, you know, to investigation of that topic. Would you say it's then a relationship of compromise with your research as well, kind of like you weighing in the bits that are, you know, the bits that you feel comfortable doing and the bits that you can access and then sort of weighing like what you can't as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really cool, like, I, I can't remember, there's a particular theorist that who's, who's term this, whose term this is, but there's, you know, this idea that, right, like all, all, all perspectives are partial and that part of what we do is, is in our published work, um, in our work that we, that we, basically make transparent the partiality of our own perspective in particular ways, which is why you always find in anthropology articles and, you know, monographs as well, like this kind of section, right, that's required that kind of is laying out for the reader kind of, kind of okay, who is this researcher and how should I understand their, their interpretations? Um, but there's a science and technology studies theorist, um, Donna Haraway, whose work is like, she's identified with uh, this idea of situated knowledges, which is also, it's a similar idea about how like all knowledge is situated and all you know perspectives are partial. So um, we, we accept that, we need to accept that and we need to provide understandings for, for readers on how to kind of receive our interpretations, right? Through this idea that, that our knowledge is, is very situated. Um, so I think the idea that you like you use the concept of like this notion of compromise, I think that that speaks to that mm. situatedness and that partiality too. Yeah. So I think that ties in well with another question. So the Black Lives Matter movement has encouraged all of us to be reflective of our own positions and goals. Um, for me personally, it's made me feel as a Western student that it is problematic to enter a research position focusing on the Arab world. Um, am I partaking in a centuries-old tradition of Orientalist tropes, do you think? Or... <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, so there's, right, there's a, there's a paralysis, you know, that I think, you know, can kind of be induced through this idea that, um, especially like between like sort of this idea of the West and the rest, right, there's, that we're always, always already going to be engaged in, you know, a, a colonial endeavor, B, a, an orientalizing project through, through this idea of studying the other, right? And like, so there's a paralysis, right? Like it becomes like paralyzing where there's, there's no movement then, you know, there's no, right. There's a kind of like, you'd have to wash your hands of your own interests, right? <laughs> like to, you know, to say that there'd be no way, there's no sort of equitable way of developing intellectual work. If it's, if it's in some ways, the geography is one that's like, you know, West and the rest or West and the other. Yeah. So anthropology is right. Like this is a whole discipline that is literally its foundations are founded, you know, in the colonial project. And, um, you know, we, we talk about these things a lot in anthropology seminars. So I think 
just as a kind of practical sort of how-to or a way to approach or a way to kind of maybe um, challenge or confront some of those politics, I, I think one of the ways that anthropologists have confronted um, these realities, right, these power, like the power, the realities of these inequalities between everything, right, who gets to observe and who gets to be observed, right, who gets to um, the gaze, right, the Western gaze, all of these things. One way is through what we loosely term engaged anthropology, but basically one way to, I think, approach research in, let's say, in the Arab world is, or another part of the world, or basically a, you know, a marginalized or um, systematically oppressed group of people is to approach projects through a very engaged kind of collaborative way. So to find out from people who live in a place you know, what their kind of needs are. Um, so, I mean, their needs may, be not have, may not have to do with, you know, articles and books or something like that, but they may have needs that have to do with shaping policy. Shaping policies and shaping, you know, what happens at the government level would be a specific way in which an anthropologist could actually give back to that particular group, you know, or particular community. And that's one approach, I think, this idea of like, instead of approaching kind of a, a group of people or a community of people as, um, sort of research subjects, thinking of them as, as research partners, and then finding out from these people, from this community, kind of like, what is it that you would want me like to do? Like, it could be, what's, like, what stories do you want to share? Um, which is not as, you know, um, is not related so much to policy, but it could be, you know, what is it about your own histories and your own lives that you, you know, what stories do you want the world to know? Um, so collaborative in that way, or, collaborative um, in a way that's actually, yeah, like how, how could my research benefit, you know, your community? And then like <laughs> figuring out what those actual channels might be. Um, that's, a, I mean, that's certainly right. Like a much less um, exploitative way of going about research, right? That's not um, solely for the benefit of the researcher. This is not actually one of the areas that I'm like, this is not really an identity that I'm, that I have, you know, this is not, nobody would look at my work and say it's necessarily engaged. Um, but I think that the work that I have done has felt authentic to that, to the principle that I kind of mentioned a minute ago of like, what, what do you want the world to know that they're not, that they're not hearing, right? About how things are working, let's say in Lebanon or how the work I'm doing now with Syrians, um, Syrian men in the, like across the Syrian warscape is they're interested in telling a story about their experiences during the Syrian war. That's a story they don't think has gotten out, you know? And so they're actually want, they're using, not using me as a mouthpiece, but the only reason they're willing to share their stories is because they want people to understand and have a more, um, a more robust understanding and a more complex understanding, you know, of Syria and Syrians and things like that. So so I think there's different, my point is there's a different ways I think of conceiving what engaged like research, you know, what, what sort of what constitutes that. But I think basing research on principles of like being engaged and being collaborative and in different kinds of ways is definitely a way forward. Um, I mean, I think that at some point I could see in, at some point soon us all, you know, like that should be sort of a requirement, right? In some ways, like if you're going to produce scholarly work, you know, of what benefit is this outside of the academy, for example, and you'll see, there's more and more work um, that is um, defined the way I'm describing. But I, I imagine that 
I can see that this would become something that's actually will grow quite a bit and through different fields. So I'm not sure, you know, this is something in anthropology and there's very much um, at the forefront, but maybe not in other disciplines. Yeah, I think coming from an international relations background, um, it definitely feels like a bit of an afterthought, I've got to be honest, because um, it I've only experienced it in this course that I'm doing right now in this semester um, where we're calling it to question like, how is our research actually useful? Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely not been, you know, mentioned at all in any of the other subjects that I've been doing. So it's, yeah, very instructive, I guess, to hear that. Um, and it's definitely something that I'm going to take into my own work. So on a slightly different note, um, as an openly and visibly queer student, what do you think the response would be from other academics and professionals in the field in regards to my identity? Um, could you share any experiences around queer identity, either from yourself or from your colleagues? When you say the field, do you mean in the region or do you mean even like in scholar, like scholarly fields of study? So I think both. I mean, definitely seeing TV interviews in Arabic um, from the region. I mean, even when there are scholars on there, they're very heated and um, can often be very personal. But also, I think in the academic field as well, like, would I be taken seriously as somebody who identifies as non-binary? For me, again, I'm, I speak only from my discipline. Um, sort of that's my, my understanding of, um, you know, like gender queer, openly queer anthropologists and um, non-binary. Like this is very much like an established kind of part of the field of professional anthropology, both as like as, as, a, as a topic, right? Like gender and sexuality studies, you know, um, absolutely, a, you know, sort of a foundational kind of area of study in contemporary anthropology. Um, but also there's, there's like a, there's a subsection. I know they changed their name recently, um, but there's a subsection in the American Anthropological Association that um, a lot of queer anthropologists I know belong to and, you know, sort of have helped actually reshape in the wake of, I think it might've been, I think it might've been termed feminist the feminism was in the title, um, in the name of the subsection, and it, it's been renamed in the last maybe five, 10 years. Um, there's absolutely a place, you know, for you in, in the academy and, you know, in, increasingly so, and there's increasing, like, certainly tolerance, but also, I mean, there's, there's change and there's change, there's change being made and, and there's change being made by, by younger people, you know, and younger scholars, which is great. Um, this speaks to so many different things having to do with, you know, diversity and um, inclusivity, you know, on campuses, including, you know, obviously pronouns and just making people even, you know, my age, just much more aware of the terms of debate and the terms of identity that are really meaningful and important for, for all of us to really be aware of, you know, so I think I'm sure you you know, you know that you're that you're part of a generation that is pushing people who are part of my generation, you know, to make these changes and to to kind of update our politics, right? Like, so this has happened to me with teaching, and you know, I remember I was teaching something related to gender um, just like two years ago, and my teaching assistant was like, you know, this is a little bit out of date. This is a little bit like 
you know, I can't remember what it was, if it was, I think it was, I think it was basically, there was a lot of binarism still coming through my kind of trying to teach um, an intro level class and trying to teach, you know, um, against certain forms of discrimination, but she was seeing me kind of propping up certain kind of forms of binarism in my, you know, in my lecture slides or something like that. And I said to her, wow, thank you so much. You know, this are, these are the interventions that people that were kind of trained and kind of came of age in a certain moment in the world, like we need these interventions. So I, my point is that I think these interventions are necessary, they're important, and they're part of the fashioning of like the way that we teach and the way that we theorize the world. So. I think, so I guess my point is in the first part of the question, I'm saying there's absolutely a place for you in, in you know, the profession, of, in a profession or in, a, you know, scholars, but there's also a place for, for a lot of change to be made at kind of just in terms of conceptual and theoretical approaches in, in the work that we all do um, and, you know, challenging kind of like a politics that's now 20 years ago, right, 20 years out of date in the way that we teach about gender and the way that we teach about sexuality and the way in which we kind of broaden our sense of, of inclusivity and things like that. So I think that there's, I think there's so much work to be done, but I think it's, we need these changes, right? Is kind of what I'm saying. We need society to change. <laughs> that's, and that's important. Now, specifically to the region, just to turn to kind of what does it mean to be um, queer or non-binary in settings. I don't know how much you've traveled in the region. Um, I think, you know, I'd probably take a different, you know, I might answer, you know, like this, I would take a different approach in, in responding to that kind of question, because when we're talking about um, putting one's self at any kind of risk of, of not just discriminatory behavior, but putting one's body at risk of, of at risk, right? Like in, in places that are not tolerant, um, that's kind of like a whole, anyway, it's a whole another way of approaching kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? Positionality and deciding where one might do research and how one's identity would shape the re shape research. So in places, I mean, Lebanon happens to be right. I, you know, the most open, right. And the most, um, I mean, and this is, you know, within bounds, right. The most, I would say the most kind of queer friendly, you know, um, society. And this is, you know, you may know people, you know, who would temper that statement, you know, and say, yeah, and, there, and, and there's some, there's certain confines and literally confines within the city of Beirut and things like that, where you, where um, one would be comfortable being openly queer. It's like, so I, one thing that comes to mind is, I don't know how much work you read that's queer studies in the region, you know, but they're quite, not, not a lot. I mean, there's, there's some, older works that were um, have kind of been unpacked and challenged by more younger scholars. Um, so, you know, people like Joseph Massad's work, you know, his work from probably, is that maybe 20 years old already? I don't know. Um, and Sofiane Meribetz, who's a, has had, who's a friend who's, who wrote Queer Beirut, um, whose book came out maybe just, just around the time mine did, maybe about 2016. Um, there's a book right now that I'm going to I'm going to review for the journal City and Society that's called Disruptive. I think it's Disruptive Orientalisms. It's it's written by um, a sociologist here in the U.S. and it's it's a it's also about queer Beirut. So those are that's a recent book actually. I'm going to be um, reviewing for a journal soon. Um, there's been there's been some work. Oh yeah, there's um, Saeed El Achan who has a book on a recent book about Palestine. And I know him, and uh, 
there's been some other work done on, I think, Arabs in living actually in, um, you know, Israel itself. But his work is about Palestinians, I believe, in the West Bank. So there's there's academic work. And I mean, I guess there's not just academic work, but these are these are networks of scholars that I think are really um, very accessible and very interested in helping sort of guide or provide advice to, you know, for, for scholars who might be interested in either studying those, who are either queer themselves or who are interested in studying those kinds of issues in the region. So those are just some of the names of people that happen to be all men. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, oh, oh, um, Maya Mikdashi, her work, she's also, she's Lebanese and her work um, has definitely more to say um, about queerness in the region in relationship to legality and citizenship. Um, but um, I'm thinking about yeah, her work as well. But anyway, so these are some of the names of scholars. And I guess what I'm suggesting too is that if you were interested in pursuing postgraduate work, um, for example, like if you were to leave Australia, for example, these maybe would be scholars you might want to reach out to that you know you would be seeking advice from them or that maybe you would want to work with, for example. So you might want to take a look at their work yeah, so it's 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 a difficult um, path, you know, to, to take um, as a member of society uh, to to be queer in a lot of the parts of the Arab world. I think that's I think that's a reality that most would agree with. But I think you know what else I'm thinking about Max is that given what's happened with the pandemic and how research is being transformed now, in the sense that we're all having to become virtual researchers. I think this is amazing, especially for younger people <laughs> who are more adept in social, who are using social media, who are adept in social media. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity because what's happening is virtual, for, you know, digital ethnography and forms of virtual fieldwork are becoming the norm and they're not going to be marginalized and they're not going to be considered second best perhaps anymore. They're going to be considered the form, forms of, you know, legitimate forms of research. So this is to say that it may be possible more than ever, now more than ever, to do research on topics that are less visible and with people that are not visible publicly, right? Like there's some ethics around digital research, you know, like absolutely. So I'm not saying, you know, interview everybody you want over social media and WhatsApp, but I'm saying virtual research is gonna become a more legitimate form of research. And that will give us all more access to the lives of people who are not visibly identified, right, in certain ways, who cannot, you know, visibly identified. So that's one way to think about, for example, the pandemic, you know, the kind of um, silver linings that we're all searching for. Um, I think that um, there's a lot to be gained through research in these other mediums, inclu like including social media. There are other approaches, methodologically speaking, to um, developing research about these topics. And I think they're becoming more pronounced, you know, obviously, in the wake of the pandemic. Um, that's a really exciting high note to end on. So there are so many more questions that I really want to ask you, but I guess I'll have to save them to, you know, coming emails. Um, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure to interview you and hear your perspective on these things. Okay, thank you so much, Max. Hello, this is Ivana Ho. I'm the producer of Future Self. I'm here with Max, fresh out of his interview with Associate Professor Monroe. So Max, did you find it helpful talking to her? Absolutely. Um, it gave me so many insights on how I can structure my academic career and my writing. 
um, it really clarified a lot of things, especially when talking about things like um, my position as a Western student. Um, I'm really interested by the engaged anthropology side of things. Um, and yeah, it was just really fascinating to talk to her in general. Was there anything that she said that, you know, was unexpected to you about the path to where she got to and just academia generally? Hmm, I think her, <laughs> um, her path in general, I was, I was really surprised at how sort of similar it was to mine. Like, I also am not a straight A student, um, even though I am planning to go into honours. <laughs> um, but... I think especially hearing that she had come from a steel city and the fascination of cities and that in large part, what really matters was what came from the heart and like where your heart lies. Um, and I think it was really reaffirming to hear that to be, to be on that path is, yeah, is all about where your heart lies. Well, Max, I think that this has been an excellent way to kickstart Future Self. Thank you so much for participating in this and doing a kick-ass interview. You're very welcome. I'd be happy to do it anytime. <laughs>